Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Uh, today, October 31st, the anniversary of the fabled nailing of the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg Church door, Martin Luther launching what is uh, commonly called the Reformation. Of course, modern scholars are dropping that title. Carlos Iyer, for instance, at Yale, has now written an outstanding book called The Reformations, uh, finally getting the plural in there because of the great diversity of uh, theological and political change that occurred in the 16th century. But I wanted to say, you know, as a Catholic who benefited through many years of my life uh, within evangelical Protestantism, uh, I wanted to make it clear that, you know, I owe a great deal to evangelical Protestantism. I, I learned how to pray there. I learned how to respect Scripture there. Uh, I learned how to share my faith within that community. And so I never want to give the impression that I think there's a, there are doctrinal disagreements which are serious, but this is still, these are disagreements within the family. And um, I want to make sure that we approach this question of the Reformations in that manner. So let me say that there, it seems to me there are a few positive things that one derives from the, the Reformation era, and that is there is a recovery of the idea of lay vocation that ends up as a result of the magisterial reformers' attack upon the church hierarchy. Uh, there's a new emphasis given to the laity, the cobbler, you know, the baker, the candlestick maker, all learning how to live out their vocation as laymen. Now, this is also picked up in the Catholic tradition as well by Fran Francis de Sales. St. Francis de Sales emphasized this as well. There's also the, con the, the tradition of congregational singing, which especially arises uh, from the Lutheran Reformation. So, and there are other things you can say, you know, there are positive. But the, the real issue here is to ask, for the breakup of Western Christendom, did the Reformers actually get what they wanted? Was the Reformation a success in their mind? Well, these are the two things they wanted out of it. They wanted to renew Christ's one church, and they wanted to accelerate the moral and spiritual growth of their fellow Christians. And unfortunately, according to those criteria, Luther, Calvin, Bucer, Melanchthon, all agreed they had failed. Uh, they did not renew uh, Christ's one church. In fact, what ended up happening, here, Calvin, writing to Luther's best theologian, Melanchthon, writes, it is indescribably ridiculous that we who are in opposition to the whole world, should be at the very beginning of the Reformation at issue among ourselves, end quote. To which Melanchthon replied, All the waters of the Elbe would not yield me tears sufficient to weep for the miseries caused by the Reformation. So clearly there wasn't a unity there. There was a different Reformation impulse theologically and politically in Germany, versus what happened in Switzerland under Zwingli, Calvin, and Bucer. Then there's what happened in England under Henry VIII and then his daughter Elizabeth II. There's the so-called Radical Reformation with uh, Menno Simons and Conrad Grable. And, of course, there is eventually the entire Catholic Reformation with the Council of Trent and St. Francis de Sales, Charles Borromeo, Ignatius Loyola, Teresa of Avila. Did they end up producing a better Christian? Again, I won't read the quotes because I don't have the time, but they admit they haven't done any better than those popish believers. Join me right now to talk about 
the uh, Reformations. Ben Weicker, he's author of The Reformation, 500, thing, 500 Years Later, 12 Things You Need to Know. He's Professor of Political Science and Director of Human Life Studies at the Franciscan University. And uh, Ben, good to have you with me. Catholics are in a bit of an awkward position, it seems to me, this year, because we're going to be uh, understanding that our non-Catholic brothers and sisters will be celebrating uh, kind of their own <clears throat> story of origins or myth of origins. And, of course, Catholics, while they can acknowledge certain problems that existed, can't really cheer the formal breakup of European Christendom uh, that came as a result of the Reformation. Uh, you make the point at the very beginning of the book that the Reformation itself is kind of running out of steam. And Christianity is not, but the so-called Reformation is. Tell me what you mean. Well, what we see around us uh, today is, uh, in some senses, not very pleasant. That is, all Christians are under attack, both right. Catholic and Protestant. And, and uh, they're under attack, by uh, obviously, by the secular left. Uh, and, you know, the secular left doesn't care whether you're Catholic or Protestant. It cares... <laughs> that you toe the line uh, in regard to political correctness, in regard to gay marriage, in regard to all of its favorite points. But it wants to remove all Christians from from the public realm, uh, mm -hmm. from the public square. And so in that, the good news is that Catholics and Protestants are finding themselves coming together. Right. And when they come together to fight for common cause against abortion, gay marriage, and so on, um, the, your friendships are are being uh, forged, and the old animosities and tweaks and slights and slanders and so on yep. uh, are are fading in comparison to the common task we have since we're all under attack. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what I mean by saying the Reformation is coming to a close, because Christians themselves are emphasizing more what they have in common than what divides them. And that same situation is just as true in regard to uh, radical Islam as it is radical secularism. Right, right. You know, ra radical Islam is not saying, "Oh, you're, you know, you're a, you're a Presbyterian. I won't, I won't chop your head off." Mm -hmm. uh, or, "Yes, you are a Catholic." I'll, it's any Christian. You're all infidels. And again, uh, Christians are coming together, Catholic and Protestant, and saying, "We have a common cause here. Uh, maybe our differences are not so important as our commonalities." Mm -hmm. And that's what I hope will be bringing the Reformation to a close, bringing out maybe a new Reformation, mm -hmm. one which is, you know, we're, we're trying to seek real unity, not false unity, not we don't have any real differences, but a real unity based on our, our common uh, understanding of the centrality of Christ. Yeah, and there's been progress actually formally made, uh, isn't there, in, in terms of uh, the, the statement of the uh, uh, World Lutheran Federation and the Catholic Church on justification? Yeah. Yeah, and, and there's been great historical work done over the last 150 years about the causes yeah. of the Reformation, and you know most people understand the, the political dimension of this now, which maybe they didn't understand 200 years ago. Exactly. Yes, and and very political. And I go over that in the book. Mm -hmm. um, if we understand that there were people at the time who had an interest, that is, at the time of the Reformation, 500 years ago had a political interest in a kind of a divide-and-conquer strategy right. of Christians so that they could literally have their own state church, uh, then, you, then you understand that the Reformation got out of hand in important respects because 
of that political dimension. It didn't have to be that bad, mm-hmm. but there were people who had designs uh, in fifteen hundred, uh, five hundred years ago um, that that included the subordination of Christianity to the state, and so it was better for them if you broke apart the Catholic Church, broke Christianity into little pieces. And uh, those little pieces could could perform the function like the Anglican Church did in England, of a, of a of a tame subordinated state church. Right. Um, and when you realize that, you say, well, gosh, maybe our differences weren't as deep as they may have appeared, and maybe they were made worse because somebody else's it was in somebody else's vested interest to make them that way. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you make the great point that reformations will be with us to the end. Uh, They've been with us from the beginning. And we see it even on the pages of the New Testament, the need uh, for correction and discipline. We know that we've had major uh, reformations throughout, or at least revivals throughout Catholic history, Franciscan, Dominican, Jesuit. So elaborate on that a little bit for us, uh, because I I think this is often overlooked, that the Catholic Church is a reforming institution. Yes. Yeah, they keep letting sinners in like me, so what are they going to do? You know, as long as, as long as that policy continues of letting sinners in, you're going to need a reform. And, you know, among the original folks, uh, you read about the New Testament, there's already uh, difficulties and frictions and confusions that have to be settled. So once you understand, well, wait a second, there are reforms going on for the entire history. Uh, you see that the Reformation with a capital R is just one more of those reforms. That is, the Catholics have to understand the Church needed reforming. And I have a long chapter on, you know, yeah, yeah, there really were bad popes. Right. Uh, We really did need to reform. But once you put it in that context, you can say, well, why did this one reform turn from a, you know, reform with a small r to a reform with a big r? Why is it the Reformation? And that's, you know, the, getting to the, to the foundation of that is what I try to do in the book, because we can understand that what turned into big R Reformation um, might be sources extrinsic to Christianity that, that, again, wanted to control Christianity rather than uh, was, uh, you know, aiming at any kind of a great reforming truth itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a whole chapter on why the papal states were a major cause of the Reformation. Can you lay that out for us? Yeah, uh, this is a, a, a rather complex thing, but yeah. I'll, I'll boil it down this way. Once the Pope became a prince of the uh, the Italian papal states, Italy was divided really into five different what you could call principalities. It wasn't there was no such thing as Italy. There was just these five different principalities, mm-hmm. one of them being the Pope's. Then he's got divided allegiance. You know, he's supposed to be the head of the Universal Church. But he's really the, also simultaneously the prince of a particular domain that gets in all kinds of political squabbles. Right. And once you make him the prince of the Italian, these Italian papal states, it attracts people to the papacy who want to control it for political reasons. And that's how you get some of the bad popes. It isn't that the, the institution of the papacy is a bad thing. It's that the papacy... Uh, got its own political domain as well. And what that does is it, it attr- basically it attracts, in some instances, a, Italian noble families who are no better than the mafia. Right. And, and that's not a good thing. Uh, so 
the papal states tended to, uh, even though they may have been innocent in their origin, uh, ended up severely distorting uh, the papacy. And, it, and that was very clear at the time of Luther, that the pope was really a prince. Hmm. Okay, hold it there, Ben. We'll come back and continue. My guest, Dr. Benjamin Weicker. The book is The Reformation, 500 Years Later, 12 Things You Need to Know. <clears throat> We're reviewing uh, Ben's work here and also, again, helping us focus on this, in this Protestant Reformations how we can best see uh, a way to common witness. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta with Dr. Benjamin Weikers. He's the author most recently of The Reformation, 500 Years Later, 12 Things You Need to Know. And we've been talking, as we closed off the last segment, why the papal states were a major cause of the Reformation. The church uh, held a lot of land, was a great landholder, and that brought great corruption into the church. Uh, For instance, in this case, the pope became uh, just one other prince uh, among the many princes uh, of the Italian peninsula. What are these donations to the Roman Church? You know, the donation to Constantine and Pope Gregory, what are those things? Well, this is a, there's a famous document, the donation of Constantine, and um, uh, that document was actually a forgery. <clears throat> um, maybe forgery is not the, the right word. It might be so this is a wishful thinking, <laughs> uh-huh. that somebody wrote this document up um, and the you know the the document itself uh, allegedly tells how it was that the Emperor Constantine that would be at the beginning of the 300s gave all this land uh, to the Pope at the time this would be the, again the early 300s what actually was written like four or five hundred years after that right um, but it is true that Constantine actually gave things to the church right in other words. Um, it, it, people say, oh, the donation of Constantine, you know, this famous document that was a forgery, it just shows us how bad the Catholic Church is, it's all falsity, but it's really not. Uh, Constantine gave uh, the Lateran Palace, actually, to the, to the Church at the mm-hmm. time, and he also gave other lands, and others donated lands to the Church. So it wasn't implausible. This was not implausible. No, no, not yeah. at all. I mean, and it, may, it, it was, you know, you're trying to help out the Church. Sure. Sure. And, and and so it seemed like a good thing. And uh, one of the great popes, Pope Gregory, that was the first one, um, he donated his own lands. Uh, and so you you know it's it 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 wasn't bad that they were doing this because it allowed the church to carry on its charitable work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 as when Rome fell in the four and five hundreds, you know it needed a lot of charitable work. And so the the beginning is is innocent. Uh, the problem began. Uh, the problem seeped in as you, you know those papal lands came to be seen as princely possessions mm-hmm. that that would allow you to get church revenue, and then it attracted all kinds of unsavory people. But this happened all over Europe, uh, where originally something good. Hey, I'm donating land for this monastery, or I'm donating this land for this bishopric came to be, why well, own this bishopric, and I'm going to put my son in it, you know, and yeah. I want the tithes from this land. So one of the things, one of the great reforms of the Church 
the Cluniac reform, this is like in the 1000s and uh, 1100s, was to to uh, make it so that that couldn't happen. Uh, um, you know, so clerical celibacy was one of the ways you kept people from trying to pass on bishoprics and monastic houses as kind of a, a family property to your son. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the notion was, well, if you didn't have a son, if you weren't married, then you wouldn't treat it like your personal property. Right, no dynasty. If there's no, no sons, yeah, yeah. no dynasty. Well, the problem was that, you know, these, these n- the nasty Italian nobles just overrode that, and they would be technically celibate uh, as a bishop or even a pope, but they would actually have children, and they would be passing on, um, uh, you know, lands as dynastic uh, um, uh, gifts to their own children. Wow. So this was a great corruption, a great corruption, and, and, uh, and you know, it's one that we don't recognize now, because actually, in the, you know, in the 1920s, Mussolini marched in and took all the papal states away from the the papacy and said, "Here's your, here's your little Vatican city. You know, you can have that." Yeah, and that's what the Pope has today. But he also can't get in trouble as a, as a secular prince either. Right, because the Vatican City is so small and it doesn't. It is, it's, you know, yeah. it's the size of a miniature golf course. Yeah, <laughs> I hadn't heard that comparison before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of that kind of puts it in place. Yeah, it is. You know, it's, you know, it's it's a prince, but it's a really small castle you know by comparison let's just uh, briefly talk about how bad how bad the bad popes were yeah well i wish i had good things to report but and and i do this not because i'm scandal mongering right uh this is not scandal mongering it's okay we've been divided in christianity for 500 years everyone needs a big plate of humble pie right catholic and protestant Okay, well, this is the Catholic plate of humble pie. Catholics need to understand that the complaints about the bad popes are real. We're used to folks like St. John Paul II. Well, <laughs> Alexander VI, at about the time, at about 1500, a little before that, was no John Paul II. This guy was an awful pope. Pope Leo X, an awful pope. Uh, pope um, uh, uh, Julius II, the warrior pope. They had nothing holy about them. Again, they really smelled of the mafia, um, and they, you know, they had illegitimate children. They they engaged in all kinds of underhanded political intrigue. Uh, one of them even had hired, you know, the famous Niccolo Machiavelli, you know, as one of the, you know, one of his uh, 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 papal workers to do certain tasks that he had in, in mind in Italy. Uh, so, so you have corruption, serious corruption, from like the mid 1400s on. Uh, you have problems before that with the Avignon papacy, when you have this luxurious papacy in France. That's the 1300s. You have corruption in the 900s uh, uh, that were, was really awful, an awful century, the 900s for the papacy. So it isn't, it isn't something that's, that, that you can sweep aside and say, oh, that didn't happen. Right, right. But what's miraculous is that the papacy as an institution survived all that. Mm-hmm. So that you can have a pope like St. John Paul II, uh, that in a way is a, a real miracle. It shows you that the institution is distinct from the man who may occupy it. Right. And some people would say, well, gee, if you had that kind of corruption, uh, why, don't you, why, don't, why do you think that the pope can be, quote, infallible? Well, think about it this way as a kind of a parallel. Uh, if he's infallible, and, the, and, and, and you know, the infallibility only touches matters of doctrine. Mm-hmm. 
Right. You know, I mean, everybody has to understand that they think you know being the Pope is like being the Wizard of Oz. Anything you say is true, and right. it's just not the way it is. Right. Uh, it's 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 a restricted understanding of infallibility, uh, but it would it is it is a miracle that these central doctrines haven't been touched right. with these kinds of people in the papacy, yep. and that shows you that something divine is behind it. Yep. But you might consider a parallel in regard to marriage. What if in the institution of marriage? Even if everyone in marriage is an awful adulterer and, adulterer and sinner and everything like that, the institution of marriage is still the institution of marriage. Right. Right. It's still there. It's like the institution of the papacy. Uh, so however many people try to corrupt it, the, the thing itself yep. is, is, is pristine. This is what it is supposed to be. And uh, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, it certainly isn't by the fact that you know that you have this or that man in it the office remains uncorrupted and so do the doctrines related to it and mm-hmm. and it is again a kind of miracle that I, that has occurred i like to think that they were so big, busy conniving and sinning that they didn't have much time to try to teach so <laughs> well one wonders that you know, you know I mean, I just... yeah it's a weird thing because you have you know there's atheism at the time of the reformation right? you have these really awful popes <clears throat> railing against atheism you think well that you're right. I mean, yeah. you're yes, right. that's right. I mean, good, good show, but you know, maybe you ought to clean up around the old Vatican <laughs> a little bit. Well, let's talk about that atheism. You're right. Atheism and paganism play a big part in the Reformation. That's probably a surprise uh, to most of us. It is. We think, oh well, atheism is 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 so 20th century. You know, it's yeah. not it's not anything anyone had to wrestle with before. But the truth is that atheism arose in the 1400s by uh, uh, these new, these uh, recovery of ancient pagan atheists uh, in the Renaissance. So they'd recover these documents and they'd start reading them in the 1400s, and they became convinced. Well, these ancient pagan uh, atheists were correct. So Lucretius, uh, for instance. Important? Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry again. L- Lucretius. Uh, Lucretius. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. Or or even Democritus, but certainly Lucretius. A uh, first-century Roman uh, B.C. of Epicurean philosopher was one of the worst, and and one of the most influential uh, in bringing about this new modern atheism. And by that I mean in the Renaissance, mm-hmm. and it spread all over Italy. And from the very beginning, it had as its goal the removal of Christianity. So when we look at secular society today, attacking Christians, trying to remove them. Christianity is the great enemy of our happiness. Uh, that actually has its origin in the 1400s. Mm-hmm. It's not anything new at all. Uh, it's the legacy of this, uh, the recovery and the, and the affirmation of paganism, pagan atheism against Christianity. And so that was alive and well when Luther, uh, when Luther was around in the early 1500s. So there are bad actors, then, uh, as in positions of power who are supporters of atheism and various paganism. And you also have Islam. Yes. Yeah, it's another thing. People say, well, oh my gosh, you know, Islam is around today. They're, they're attacking over in Europe. They're swamping Europe. Well, guess what? Uh, and I have a whole chapter on Islam because of this. At the time of the Reformation, the real worry of everyone was that Islam was going to break through and that would be the end of Christianity, period. Right. Yeah, because, uh, again, uh, 1500s, uh, they had invaded, you know, the area of modern-day Turkey, had taken Constantinople and turned it into Istanbul, 
and were were making their way into Europe. They had gotten as far as Vienna. They'd come in through uh, you know and, and through the south of Europe. And uh, um, the the real danger at the time that people perceived was this is this is it. Uh, Islam was going to conquer us, and Luther himself thought he was living in the end times. And I'm I'm sure that accounts for a lot of his imprudence. Right. That is, he didn't think there was going to be a 500 years later. Right. He thought he was living at the very end, and that made him pick up the book of Revelation. And guess who's going to play the Antichrist? Well, the Pope is going to play the Antichrist right. in his account, uh, because it's the end times. And, uh, and the uh, Islam is going to be the rod of God's punishment, like the Assyrians or the Babylonians. And so Luther at that time was even accused of aiding and abetting Islam right. because he's saying you can't resist the rod of God's punishment. Yeah, yeah. This was so God's judgment upon that. the papacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, I want to come back on, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to come back on the other side of the break and talk about, we alluded to it earlier, and that is the role of nationalism and the, the new awareness of these uh, various people groups uh, we forget there was no real Italy then, there was no real Germany then, but nationalism was on the move. My guest, Dr. Benjamin Weicker, the book, The Reformation, 500 years later, 12 things you need to know. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta with Dr. Benjamin Weicker. The book is The Reformation 500 Years Later, 12 Things You Need to Know. What is nationalism, and uh, what's it have to do with the Reformation? Well, we we think of nations as some kind of natural thing that drops down on, makes different colors on maps. Right. You know, so it drops down from a cosmic place. Rand McNally is uh, infallible, yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So, so the, 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 the truth is that nationalism was something that was born, actually goes back uh, to the 1300s, to the, uh, the Hundred Years' War between France and England. And all nationalism means is that a king is trying to get control over a bunch of smaller, that is, lesser nobles. Mm-hmm. And it, the, the the nation is really the invention. It's it's the land that that king can actually control by controlling the nobles. And so all, all nationalism all nationalism is is the rise of kingship in Europe. And his nation is literally how many people he can control, how much land he can control. And in France and England, you had stronger kings. Whereas not so in what we call Spain, not so in England, and not, I'm sorry, not so in Germany. There wasn't any Germany. There was just a bunch of princes. Right. And in, and in Italy, there were just a bunch of princes, one of them being a pope. Mm-hmm. And so the drive to make a nation that is an, a, a larger land area under one king actually brought about the desire to have a national church under the particular king's control. And so the English wanted an English national church, and the French wanted a French national church. 
and that means that they've got to be in conflict with the papacy, which, on you know, it, properly speaking, should have been a universal church. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So you've got a conflict there, and Henry the Eighth. Uh, making, literally making of the Anglican Church, that is the Church of the Angles, the English, in the early 1500s, is simply the fruit of Edward III uh, in England in the 1300s, making a national church in England. Hmm. It's this fight that you're going to find between these kings and the papacy about who controls the the church in their realm, and uh, the desire is for that king to have the monies from the church so he can carry on his expansion. Right, right. And you don't want that money flowing to Rome. Well, that's exactly what's going on when Luther's around. And the question is, those German princes don't want the money flowing from their churches into Italy to the Roman Catholic mm-hmm. Pope, who's also the prince of the papal states. right. And so they're they're less concerned there. about theology than they are about money and land. Yeah, and and the point of it is is that if if you don't control your church, uh, your national church, then those tithe monies are going to flow out to Rome. Right, and you don't want that. Mm-hmm. And so Luther is actually stirring up a lot in regard to making Germany a nation, just like France. In England, and in order to do that, you have to get the German churches under control of Germans. In his case, the German, either the German Holy Roman Emperor, who was neither very holy nor very Roman, or the German prince, you know, or at least some of the German princes. Mm-hmm. And so he's using the power of the German princes to break the power of the Church of Rome yeah. as a kind of Italy, you know, Roman. Roman prince being the pope versus the the uh, German princes. So these are really national struggles then when looked at through that lens. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Luther's struggle, a lot of Luther's uh, uh, success is because he was able to think in terms of cre- the creation of a German national church. And he did think in those terms. I'm very clear about that mm-hmm. in the book. That is, he's he wants a German national church. Yeah. And what he provides is the kind of church that works well under the control of the local prince. He literally hands them the control of the the local church, and so you have the creation of what amounts to Lutheranism becoming the state religion of the German principalities. And that's not very, eh, you know, when it becomes that, it's sort of like being a priest or minister as a civil servant— well, that's just what it became. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah you're a court prophet at that point. You know, you're you're you're, yeah. you're under the control of the civil authorities. Yes, um, exactly. And and Luther was never tired of saying, you know, render under Caesar what Caesar, mm-hmm. render under Caesar what Caesar. Do not rebel. So he had this really strong, you know, uh, uh, scripturally based handing over of the power to the secular prince, which. You know, okay, well, if the prince is Christian, yeah, you can sort of see it. But what if he's not? Well, right. soon, you know, the princes really didn't care all that much except about how useful it was to have Lutheranism for the civil religion of the principality they were in. This leads, uh, the, the Reformation leads to uh, warfare, um, and that warfare then 
is used as an argument against Christian participation in civil affairs. The idea is, look at the Thirty Years' War. That shows you that religion and politics, quote, don't mix. Yeah, and this is a great Enlightenment myth. So notice the dates. You're right to point that out. The Thirty Years' War is is, uh, the first half of the 1600s. And so... The Enlightenment is the next century, the 1700s. Yeah, that's right. And the Enlightenment is looking back and saying, well, you, there you go. That's just Christianity. They're always fighting each other. They'll never stop. They're hopelessly divided, and it always leads to war. Therefore, Christianity has to be removed from the public realm, and we have to have an entirely secular and secularized state. Now, the problem with that is that it's false. The Thirty Years' War was caused by nationalism. Right. Caused by nationalism, and I detail this. It's the last chapter in the book, so we can explode that myth. Um, And when you look into it, you see, wow, it was an awful war, but it wasn't because of religious conflict. That was was, uh, ancillary to the whole thing. Right. And a sign of that is you've got Protestants fighting Protestants, Protestants joining Catholics to fight other Protestants. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> Catholics siding with Protestants to fight other Catholics. Yeah. Catholics fighting, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense of the war if you try to boil it down to Catholic versus Protestant. People switching sides all the time, mercenary troops, you know, the whole mess can be understood as a, a nationalistic war's um, uh, that would have happened anyway, even if the Reformation hadn't occurred. That is, they were bound to happen because of the rise of nationalism. They did happen. Now they used religious differences. And that's how it looks like a religious war. Right. But that wasn't the cause of the fighting in any, in any instance. It, you know, so the real overriding thing is nationalism. Um, and once you do away with that myth, well, that it's nationalism that causes wars. Yeah, that makes sense. Look at the 20th century World War One and Two, yeah. the bloodiest, most horrible wars of all time were nationalistic wars. And we can say the first nationalistic war was the Thirty Years' War. Yeah, yeah, I think this is critical because people, you always, you still hear this all the time. Religion is the greatest source of conflict and war in human history. And it's simply not true. Uh, You could equally say, well, politics is the source of all conflict in history. You know what I'm saying? Or economics. The point is you have to go back to the actual causes here. Somebody might be waving a banner uh, that's Catholic, but that doesn't mean that Catholicism is what's motivating them in their uh, actual physical struggle. Uh, They're defending property. They're defending money. They're defending other vested interests. And uh, do you think... Do you think that historians are themselves going beyond this, you know, this uh, the old this myth of the Thirty Years' War as uh, a fruit of Christianity? Are they getting beyond no. that now? No, I, I, I wish I had good news to report to you. Yeah, but you know, as long as we're caught in the battle between and against a five hundred year battle between secularism and Christianity you won't see that myth die out. Yeah. They can't let go of it because it's, it's one of the f- almost foundational myths. It's too useful. Why you want to get rid of Christianity. And they want to get rid of Christianity, so they're not going to ask that. And another one is, 
you know, in relationship to Islam. Oh, you know, my gosh, this shows you how bad Christianity is. Look at their crusades. Yes, yes, say, yes. Okay, folks, you know, here's another complete misunderstanding of what really happened. But it doesn't matter that it's false because it's a useful myth. And so Christians have to know. That's one of the reasons I wrote this book. Folks, ignorance is not bliss. Right. It is not bliss. We need to understand, and when somebody says to us, oh, religion's the cause of all this, you know, these wars, uh, you said, well, actually, why don't we have a sit-down and talk? Did you know boom, 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 boom? Yeah. Now, whether that gets them to change their mind is another story, because even in the face of overwhelming facts, they tend to repeat the same stories, because that's what they've been told, and they can't get it out of their head. We've got about two minutes left, Ben. Uh, Martin Luther is a central figure in this storyline. How should Catholics regard Luther? What is the appropriate way of regarding him, given that he's beloved in certain uh, Christian traditions, and yet he's very flawed in many ways? Uh, Yes, Uh, and and what they should do is, first of all, look, the Church did need to be reformed. The papacy was not reforming. So you understand how Luther came about. But, you know, Luther is warts and all, and Luther's got a lot of warts. And when you point out that almost as soon as he set forth the Reformation on the principles of based on Scripture alone, immediately his followers split into different rival factions, and Luther treated them like he did yeah. the, uh, the Catholic Church. They were of Satan. So he's, everyone's of Satan but him. This is within years. Yeah, within with a very short time. I mean, uh, uh, within within five years, yep. almost all the divisions among Protestants were already flowering, mm-hmm. and Luther was livid because he couldn't figure out. You know, he couldn't admit that um, the Bible alone didn't keep this from happening because right. the Bible alone was supposed to be sufficient. Well, he had other biblical scholars who followed him. They weren't yokels. Uh, who knew the primary languages, and they come up with radically different views. Right. And, and Luther cursed them up one side, down the other. Uh, and in fact, you know, that helped the Thirty Years' War, that Protestantism became split, and the splits could be used. Yeah, that's right. Ben, thank you so much. Uh, great job. A very, very helpful book, too. Uh, thank you very much. And thanks for having me. Dr. Benjamin Weicker, again, this is uh, incredibly helpful Uh, look at this uh, because it's so even-handed, fair-minded, and yet uh, hews closely to the facts. The Reformation 500 years later.